Thank you so much for tuning in. Welcome to our podcast celebrating Black History Month with this year's focus, particularly on Black health and wellness. This will be part one of a two-part podcast. My name is Joe Bujama, and I'm an associate in Littler's San Francisco office. And my name is Jason Bird, and I'm an associate in Littler's New York City office. And we are here with our special guest, Dr. Adia Gooden. Hi, happy to be here. This year, the theme of Black History Month is Black health and wellness. The pandemic has really highlighted health inequity in Black Americans. Access to quality health care is not new, however, and Black communities continue to be underserved. As part of Black History Month, we too strive to bring the disparity to light and hope that change is on the horizon. In part one, we will be discussing issues surrounding Black health and wellness at the larger systemic level. In part two, we will be discussing Black health and wellness at the interpersonal level. It's our pleasure to have Dr. Adia guide us through these topics. Dr. Adia is a licensed clinical psychologist with a BA from Stanford University and her PhD from DePaul University. She's worked as a university counselor supporting students from underrepresented groups, written numerous academic articles, and recently co-authored a forthcoming book on Black women's mental health that will be published by Cambridge University Press. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So, Dr. Adia, we know you've written extensively about the realities for Black people with respect to healthcare. Could you talk a bit about some areas you identify to be the most notable disparities and the harshest realities for Black Americans navigating the healthcare system? Yeah, it is a really pervasive issue. I think there's a lot of health disorders and health outcomes where Black people unfortunately experience worse outcomes. So cancer, heart disease, diabetes, COVID, a more recent one. Certainly there's high rates of both maternal and infant mortality among Black women, Black mothers, and their children. And those are some areas where we see Black people have worse outcomes. I think the challenge is that so often in the U.S., we're really focused on the individual and what the individual may or may not be doing right or wrong to protect their health. But what we know is that these inequities that we see, these disparities that we see are really systemically based, right? It's really about systems that both increase the likelihood that Black people will experience a negative health outcome and reduce the likelihood that they will be treated appropriately and get the care that they need when they're interfacing with the healthcare system. Wow. Thank you for that answer. And especially the timeliness that COVID has brought upon this conversation. Speaking of COVID and the timeliness of this conversation, I know the CDC has been a uh, at the forefront of everyone's minds, especially as of late, maybe more so now than ever. The CDC identifies racism as a fundamental driver of racial and ethnic health disparities. To advance health equity and build a healthier nation, declaring racism a public health issue. What differences, if any, have you noticed in the stresses your Black clients face compared to other groups? Yeah, it's a good question. I think sort of briefly related to what the CDC has identified, it's really connected to this concept called weathering, 
that is basically this idea that the stress from racism, sexism, all the isms, poverty that Black people experience affect their aging and actually cause Black people to age at faster rates than white people, right? So even though we may look great on the outside and may look really (laughs) young on the outside, right? Even though that is true, on the inside, we're often aging at faster rates because of these stresses like racism. And I think when I look at my clients and I think about the Black clients that I see, I really feel like they're experiencing an extra load, an extra burden, right? So they're human, just like anyone else and experience sort of the normal stresses of, you know, figuring out what you want to do with your career, your life or your relationships or navigating life transitions. But on top of that, there is often this layer of, well, you know, what's going on at work and how am I being perceived as a black person? Do I need to perform in a certain way? Do I need to work two or three times as hard to be acknowledged Mm -hmm. as somebody who can contribute. That's a stressor. Am I experiencing a microaggression and then questioning whether that's me, whether that's the other person, did I do something wrong? Am I even feeling safe in my workplace to be myself? Are there people I can connect to, right? Or even navigating the world or parenting. Will my child be safe at school? Will they be treated appropriately? Are they being disciplined too harshly? Am I safe walking around? my neighborhood, right? So all of these things are an extra mental and emotional load that Black people have to deal with and navigate. And that certainly shows up when I'm working with people in therapy and supporting them in figuring out how to be healthy and be well while being Black in America. Ooh, that was amazing. I did not know about the internal aging part. I I had no idea. So that is something I'm going to put on my legal pad to do more research about. So thank you for for educating us on that. I find it particularly enlightening given some of the, you know, criticisms that we hear when it comes to Black youth and how a lot of times there's a perception of Black youth being perceived as older than they actually are. So it's interesting connecting that public health aspect of things to the, you know, perception of like Black bodies and everything moving forward. And so I'm just curious as to like specifically, like to what extent does this affect how you approach assisting black clients or even what do you believe your clients expect of you to the extent that you look like them given this reality? Yeah. So part of what I think about when I'm working with black clients is naming what's happening because Often these days, we're dealing with implicit racism, right? It's not on the surface. It's not someone calling you the N-word. It's not somebody saying, hey, I really don't think you should be here because you're Black. It's the subtle. It's the always questioning your contribution and ideas. It's the, oh, really? Did you really work that hard? Right? Like, it's, it's the subtle things, right? And it's really important to name what's happening, right? To say, that sounds like racism. Or often when I'm working with clients, I might say, I wonder if you think you're being treated that way because you're a Black person in this space, right? Or how does your experience as a Black person navigating this space impact you? Because when we name it, that gives us the ability to start depersonalizing it. And 
Depersonalizing it means that it's not in me. The problem is not in me. The problem is not being black. The problem is that I'm navigating a racist system, right? And even though depersonalizing it doesn't take it away, it doesn't solve the problem. You still have to sort of deal with it and contend with it. At least you're not thinking the problem is me. If I was just smarter, if I was just more articulate, if I was just this, if I was just perfect, then they wouldn't be racist towards me. Right. And it's like, well, no, (laughs) like it doesn't actually work that way. Right. But we can start taking it on and putting more pressure. If I'm perfect, then they will treat me well. And I sort of like to say, you know, if being the perfect black person were to dismantle racism, it would have happened already. Right. But it didn't happen. It didn't happen with the Obamas. It didn't happen with a whole bunch of people, right? And that's not because we're not good enough. It's because the roots of racism and bias are unfortunately very deep and endemic in our society. So that's some of what we can talk about, right? Is sort of how do you acknowledge these pressures that you're feeling, depersonalize them, and then choose how do you want to engage in the space? What works for you? How do you take care of yourself outside of and inside of the space, right? So that you're not just overworking and hoping that one day it'll be better, but that you're actively taking care of yourself. And then I think in terms of the other part of your question, I think the expectation from my clients who are black is that I will understand this experience of being black in America, of being black and navigating predominantly white spaces and the challenges that come along with that. Sort of along that line, Dr. Adia, Do you sometimes have clients approach you or or specifically seek you out because they think you have some shared connection or because of your research and and your background? Yeah, I definitely think that's true. I think most Black people looking for therapists would like a Black therapist. I would say that's sort of the majority. And I think that's the desire because so often we're navigating predominantly white spaces where we feel not totally understood, where we feel like we have to explain ourselves and explain our culture and justify our experiences and say, this is why that was a microaggression. And that's exhausting. And we don't want to have to do that in a healing space, right? In a space that's designed to center us and our experience, we don't want to have to do that explaining. And so it makes sense that people are then saying, I would prefer a black therapist. Now, part of the reason my co-author and I wrote our book on black women and mental health is because there aren't enough black therapists at this point to provide care to all of the black people who want therapy. And so then part of the answer is let's make sure therapists from other racial and ethnic identities are ready to provide the care that black people need. Let's help them to understand the nuances of black experiences so that they can be as good a support as possible to black people. I want to stay on black women for a second, just given like what you were saying, because it seems that one unfortunate theme with black women in particular is that there's often just worse quality health outcomes. For example, if you're a woman of color, particularly for black women in the United States, the odds of dying in childbirth are three to four times higher, even when you control for socioeconomic factors. 
in large part because doctors don't believe a black woman when it comes to their pain. And so, I mean, just given that reality, I just wanted to get a sense of if you had any examples that you could share in your experience regarding the problem of medical professionals not listening to black people with respect to their health. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm actually pregnant right now. So it's something that feels very, you know, close to home. I'm pregnant for the first time. And it's something that I think about. And I have uh, a lot of privilege, right? Because I have really good insurance and I live in an urban area. So I can, you know, urban metropolitan area. So I can choose my doctor. And I was able to choose a black doctor, a black woman doctor. And I have the money to pay for a doula and I have a doula, right? And so I'm able to kind of do some things that I hope will support me having the healthiest labor and delivery and pregnancy experience as possible. But that's not always the case, right? There's a lot of privilege that I hold in doing that. So I I do think that when you have access, take advantage. And we know that there are lots of examples of Black women who, even when they did have a lot of privilege, right? So there's the example of both Serena Williams and Beyonce having crises when they were going through childbirth and delivery, right? And part of the crisis was they weren't listened to. And you think about these two Black women are incredibly healthy, right? Incredibly fit, have more money than most of us will ever have, right? So have access to the best healthcare and still we're not being listened to. There's also a couple of examples that come to mind related to COVID specifically. There was a teacher who lived in New York and I think she had graduated from Wellesley. She went to the doctor once, they turned her away. And this was the beginning of COVID. Called an ambulance, they wouldn't take her to the hospital because they thought she was just having a panic attack. And that's why she couldn't breathe. So she had to take the subway to the hospital. Mm. Eventually, you know, was admitted, but then passed away, right? A black woman physician, I think she was in Indiana, documented being denied pain medication by a white doctor, having COVID, being denied care. She eventually passed away, right? So there's numerous, countless examples of people going for care and not receiving it. There's research that shows that medical professionals think that Black people's skin is thicker and that Black people don't experience the same levels of pain that other people experience. And so then pain medication is underprescribed. It's more likely that you will sort of be, you know, not listened to. Even in the mental health space, Black people are much less likely to receive care. They are less likely to receive callbacks from therapists. So if they call and leave a message on a therapist voicemail, they're less likely to receive a callback for care. And Black people are actually more likely to receive sort of inpatient psychiatric care. And one hypothesis I have about that is the fact that there's often an over-pathologizing of Black people when they do enter the mental health system. And because they have not been able to get access to care sooner, you know, psychiatric issues or mental health issues are more likely to turn into a crisis, which then Mm. results in Mm. being treated in an inpatient and urgent situation. Wow. That is extremely intense. And especially to hear people who do have all of this access and privilege 
to these resources still wind up in acute and urgent situations, it's really stressful. And just to, to piggyback on that just really quickly, do you have any advice or guidance for people navigating that tension of, I have this access and I have this privilege, but I am still Black when I walk into the room? I think one is do your research. So be your own advocate. I think in the Black community, there certainly is a culture of deference, right? You defer to the expert, you defer to the elder. And I think that that can sometimes carry over into the patient-doctor relationship. And it's really important to go in informed, as informed as possible, instead of assuming that this doctor is going to know more about you and your body than you know, right? So really like do your research, take, you know, take a class, look online at reputable sources, like try not to go down rabbit holes, but, you know, (laughs) look online at reputable sources to really get, or if they say, Hey, this is your diagnosis. Okay. Go look it up. Right. If, if something doesn't feel right, trust your gut and your intuition, right? If you have the sense that this doctor is not listening to me, this doctor is not hearing me. I do not feel like I'm being treated appropriately. I do not feel comfortable in this space. And you have the ability to change healthcare providers, do that. Don't talk yourself out of listening to what you know is true. Our bodies hold a lot of wisdom and a lot of intelligence. And if you feel uncomfortable or unsafe, it's likely a sign that this is not a great place for you to get care or healing. So really, you know, I encourage people to sort of do their research, bring someone with you. If you need an advocate, if you feel like it's going to just be too uncomfortable to be in this space and this power differential, bring a friend, bring a family member, bring a partner with you, have a conversation beforehand about the questions you want to ask and really sort of, you know, create a game plan so that you're not just feeling like, you know, all this is coming at you. It's a 15 minute appointment, which is so short. And then you're out of there and you don't even know what happened. So I think as much self-advocacy and information gathering as you can do, that is really going to be helpful in navigating these systems. It's an interesting duality because on the one hand, medical professionals appear to not listen to Black women when it comes to healthcare advice. But then on the other hand, you're a Black woman who is a medical professional and assists people in resolving their health issues. And so just given that duality, like what's been your experience overall in this industry? You know, I think it's been interesting to be part of systems that, yeah, don't always treat my Black clients, other Black clients well. And so part of what happens when you're in a system is that you're seen as part of that system. And even if I don't identify with those things, there is some level of ownership that I've had to take around my role and my position and acknowledging that there may be some concern, some apprehension even with me as a Black therapist, because I am part of this larger system, right? So that's something that I'm, you know, I've been aware of when I've been in those systems. I think the other piece is my responsibility to try to make sure that the system as a whole is providing 
equitable care. And so for me, that has looked like heading up diversity committees, leading trainings on, you know, cultural humility and cultural responsiveness, and really trying to make sure that as many people as possible in that environment are prepared to see clients of color, to see Black clients. And so I think that's part of using my power, the power that I had in that system to try to advocate and shift that system and to not sort of just say, well, I don't agree with it. And I'm just a therapist. I'm just going to see my clients, but to say, okay, I've signed up to be part of the system and there's privilege. Mm associated with that. And I have power associated with that. And so what am I going to do? How am I going to use that power, not only to serve the clients that I see, but also to try to shift the system and the culture to make sure that all clients who come into this space are served appropriately. Uh, and, And thank you so much for like the work that you do. I mean, to the extent that we acknowledge and identify all of these issues as systemic issues that are pervasive in our communities and that are impacting our people, it's critical that we have people like you that are a part of the system that are able to like help people navigate and to overcome and to be able to promote self-advocacy so that we can ultimately, you know, begin to demand the better health outcomes that we deserve. You know, it all starts somewhere and we wouldn't be able to do it without you. Yeah. Agreed. Thank you. To that end, I just want to say thank you so much, Dr. Dia. This was part one of a two-part podcast and tune in for part two. Happy Black History Month.